The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. We are looking at the Lord's Prayer this morning. If you have your Bibles or your apps, I encourage you to open it to Matthew chapter 6. All right, Matthew chapter 6, and uh, this morning we are looking at one of the most significant, we've kind of said this every week as we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, but really one of the most important texts in the Bible, Um, one of the most important subjects for the Christian life. Uh, Our passage this morning is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. Uh, It might better be titled, uh, The Prayer for Jesus' Disciples. This passage is probably uh, the most significant text that informs the substance of of what the praying life of a Christian ought to look like. Uh, The Lord's Prayer has been foundational Christian teaching uh, throughout the history of the church. As early as, uh, we know as early as the late first century, uh, we have this document called the Didache, which is a a document that was used to instruct God's people in uh, their fellowship. And the Lord's Prayer is mentioned there as a model for what the people ought to pray and how they ought to pray. So as late as, or as early as the late first century, this has been significantly shaping God's people. Um, Our particular tradition, the Reformed and Presbyterian tradition, has so emphasized this prayer that it takes up both the final parts of our larger and shorter catechisms and has been instrumental in instructing uh, God's people in our tradition. You see it throughout all sorts of texts which are used to instruct believers um, in their faith. Luther's catechism, small uh, small and larger catechism, has large sections for the Lord's Prayer as well. So for nearly 2,000 years, this has been shaping God's people, uh, significantly shaped how they've prayed and how they view their relationship with their Heavenly Father, okay? And so let me just ask you this morning, uh, as, you're, as you're coming to this text, as you're coming to study the Lord's Prayer, uh, can you earnestly say that you have taken the time to be shaped by the Lord's Prayer? Has it seriously shaped the way that you pray? If you were to take all of your prayers and kind of plot them on a graph, would you uh, more or less fall in line with Uh, the substance of what Jesus has taught here? Um, Or would you say that your prayers would be lacking in some ways? I think for many of us, there's probably two difficulties or maybe even dangers uh, in approaching this passage this morning. Uh, One of those difficulties is the difficulty of familiarity, right? This is a passage and a prayer that we are, most of us, very, very familiar with. And we've heard it countless times. We know it exists. We've recited it just countless times in our life, uh, so much so that we can say it from from memory. And so we're so familiar with it uh, that it no longer arrests us. Right? It no longer surprises us. It no longer captivates us when we read it or recite it. And so that would be one danger or difficulty is this danger of familiarity. And the other danger or difficulty for some of us is that we have mixed thoughts about God. Right? Perhaps you do not really believe that God is a loving father who wants to hear from you and who cares about the affairs of your life. Or um, perhaps you do not be- believe that God, if he even exists, um, would really concern, be concerned about you at all. Right? And so no matter where you're coming from this morning, uh, I want to work through this passage in a way that I hope is refreshing, uh, instructive, uh, thought-provoking, and perhaps even impactful in a way that shapes your prayer life uh, going forward this morning. And so I have no single point as we go through this prayer. Uh, We're just going to be going line by line uh, through the Lord's Prayer uh, and just looking at the substance of prayer, this prayer that Jesus has taught us to pray. 
And as I said a couple minutes ago, uh, this prayer has greatly shaped uh, historic Christian thought and practice, particularly in our Reformed and Presbyterian tradition. And so I have peppered this message uh, with insights and references to several figures uh, or books or catechisms from our tradition. And I hope that that will illuminate for you how significant this prayer has been in the past and how significant it ought to be in the present. And we'll even encourage you, again, of having something firm to stand on uh, in the midst of all the change and cultural upheaval going on. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word, uh, Matthew chapter 6. I'll be reading verses 7 through 15, but we're specifically going to focus on uh, verses 9 through uh, 13 in our time together. Matthew 6, starting in verse 7. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we do just pray during this time that you would illuminate our hearts and minds uh, to sit under your word and that it would be applied to our hearts uh, and that we not would not think ourselves... Um, able to sit above your word and to judge it for ourselves. And so we pray that you would bring about effectual encouragement and conviction in those who hear this message and hear your word this morning. We pray this for Christ's sake and his name. Amen. So real quick, though, before we jump in line by line, I do just want to give a couple notes um, on this prayer that uh, I just want to mention from the outset. So first, uh, the use of this prayer. Now, we read about this in the catechism reading uh, this morning about how we can use this prayer. And I just want to reiterate a couple things from that we read in the catechism. Uh, it is useful to use this prayer to recite it uh, in our own prayer life in order to shape our prayer life, right? So it's useful to recite. It's also uh, to be viewed as a general pattern for the substance of our prayer life, right? What does the life of a Christian look like in prayer? And uh, you'll notice uh, if you, you know, if you look at these lines that each of these petitions is contained elsewhere in the Bible in numerous places in greater detail. And so as we practice the Lord's Prayer, our own prayer life will grow in the shape of this prayer and be informed by the rest of our Bible reading uh, and uh, uh, our Bible knowledge. You see, the Lord's Prayer is sort of like a stencil, uh, which gives us the shape, but it's with our own handwriting and our own instruments and our own colors that we, that we fill in the pattern. Okay, So it's the pattern that we fill in uh, as we continue to pray and grow. Uh, second, I want you to note uh, the context of Jesus' instruction here. He is concerned that we do not have a vain prayer life that is simply religious and formal, but empty on the inside. I think many of us, for one reason or another, are tempted to believe uh, that our prayer to God must be formal and fancy, that it must be profoundly theological and filled with all sorts of big words. Uh, but here Jesus teaches us that while prayer ought to be reverent and respectful, it can also be simple and brief and to the point. Long prayers, you see, are not necessarily better than short prayers. Uh, the 19th century pastor, Charles Spurgeon, he had a way with words, and uh, he humorously, this is one of my favorite quotes, uh, Spurgeon quotes, he humorously made this point when he said this, it's in your bulletin. Uh, he said, it is not necessary in prayer 
to rehearse the Westminster Assembly's catechism. It is not necessary in prayer to relate the experience of all the people who are present or even your own. It is not necessary in prayer to string a selection of texts of Scripture together and quote David and Daniel and Job and Paul and Peter and every other body under the title of Thy Servant of Old. It is necessary in prayer to draw near to God, but it is not required of you to prolong your speech until everyone is longing to hear the word. Amen. So as we study this prayer in more detail, I hope you will be encouraged to be direct with our God and not anxious about impressing him with your formal language or fancy theology. Finally, uh, one more comment on the text. Uh, The Lord's Prayer, now through the tradition of the ages okay, of the church, ends with a conclusion which reads, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. However, this conclusion is not in the earliest biblical manuscripts. So your Bible likely does not have it printed at the end, but might have a footnote saying that this isn't in the earliest manuscripts. And so it is likely, I mean, we don't know for sure, it's likely that this conclusion did not originate with Jesus, but it was added on uh, through the communion communion of the saints. Uh, It is in the Didache, right, which is around AD 90. So it's very early that we see it coming in, uh, but likely not original. And so uh, our tradition, our our particular tradition has emphasized it. Most Protestant traditions have emphasized using it. It's in our catechism. And so we will talk about it uh, this morning um, as part of the instruction of the Lord's Prayer. But it's kind of like um, the Apostles' Creed. You know, we receive the Apostles' Creed as part of the tradition of the church, and so we recite it together. Uh, You can think of it like this, that we receive this final line as part of the tradition of the Lord's Prayer, uh, but not necessarily as part of the biblical manuscript from which uh, the Lord's Prayer is derived. It's actually a line uh, likely derived from a prayer that David prays in 1 Corinthians 29. It's almost word for word identical uh, to that prayer. So that's where it comes from. So we will talk about it, but that's why you don't see it um, in your Bible. So let's dig in. Let's begin with the, uh, the preface to the Lord's Prayer, which reads, Our Father in Heaven. Okay? And there's three things which we can quickly observe uh, from this preface. First is the use of the word, Our In fact, uh, you can notice in this prayer, we have our Father, and then give us, forgive us, uh, as we lead us, deliver us, right? It's our, us, 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 not my, I, 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 okay? The prayer begins, uh, does not begin with my Father, but our Father. And from this, we learn that the praying life of the Christian is to be, first of of all, uh, communal, in that our prayers are both with and for others, as the larger catechism states. Our prayers ought to be shaped by the prayers that we make, both with and for others. Uh, John Calvin, the French theologian, uh, he uh, time and time again emphasized how the private devotional life of the Christian is to be primarily informed by the public devotional life of the Christian, not the other way around. In other words, the private life of prayer of a Christian ought to be shaped by the communal life of prayer which a Christian finds themselves in within the context of a local church. In his family catechism, the Puritan Richard Baxter emphasized that we pray our Father and not my Father to signify that we pray as members of one body and that we look for the good, comfort, and blessedness of others in union with the whole and not in a separate state by ourselves. He goes on to say that all Christians, therefore, must, as they pray for their brothers, sisters, and neighbors, love them and hate 
the sins of various schisms which cause separation within the body of Christ. Likewise, John Calvin in his Institutes, he exhorts us to conform our prayers to saying, Our Father, in order to be filled with a great brotherly love for all the saints, and to be prepared gladly and wholeheartedly to share with one another so far as any occasion requires. So the question for all of us this morning is, is this the rule that our prayers are being conformed to? Do we think primarily or significantly in terms of our and we and us, or do we think most significantly primarily in terms of I and my? Okay. Second, we read our God is to be prayed to as Father. We are told in places like Galatians 4 and Romans 8, that it is only those who have been adopted by Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit who may call on God as Father. To call on God as Father means we are approaching him through the relationship of our Savior and Mediator, Jesus Christ. This is why Calvin also emphasized that as soon as we begin to pray our Father, we are praying in Christ's name. We don't need to tack on a tagline to the end of all of our prayers to pray in Christ's name. By praying to God as Father, we are approaching him with a unique privilege that only those who are in Christ are able to do. Now, I know that the language of God as Father is difficult for some of you. All of our earthly fathers are imperfect, and some of our earthly fathers have been more imperfect than others. Now, dads, I want you to take note. Our children will learn what it means to call God Father by our example. The first place that children learn about God as Father is by our example. And so to the extent that your earthly father was kind, patient, firm, but gentle, tender, merciful, gracious, and present, then you were blessed with an earthly father that reflected our heavenly father. But to the extent that your earthly father was not these things, he did not reflect our heavenly father. And I know that many of you have suffered the presence of fathers or at the lack of presence of fathers who failed to reflect the character of our heavenly father. And so I know this word father can be difficult for you. And so uh, if it's difficult for you to hear this this morning, for you to think about drawing near to God as children to a father who is able and ready to help us, uh, let me remind you as you already know, that our heavenly father is the standard by which we compare our earthly fathers, not the other way around. Okay? And so as you continue to approach God in prayer, maybe it's even at a distance, I hope and I, and I have been praying for you that uh, he will draw you near in his arms and reveal his love and tenderness to you in a way that you can both know and feel. So our father, lastly, who is in heaven, And in this prayer, we are taught to remember how high and lofty our God is. God is what we might say is he's other than, right? He's holy. He's beyond all conception of body and soul. He is subject to neither corruption or change as we are. And he holds the entire universe uh, in his might uh, and controls it from the heavens. And so I hope you can see early on how this preface ties together both the intimacy of God and the holiness of God. He is both near to us and he is other than from us. And this is what makes the coming of Christ so beautiful. This is what makes the incarnation of Christ so beautiful and special that this God who is in heaven would descend to this earthly state, taking a body to himself for all of eternity to suffer what we have suffered in order to give you a special access to God as father. So do you you believe that this morning?
Is that where your faith and your hope and your trust lies this morning? So after the preface, we get to the second line, which is the first petition, which says, hallowed be your name. J.I. Packer, a 20th century pastor who's now with the Lord, said that in this petition, we are asking that the praise and honor of God and of him only should be the issue of everything. We are asking for his glory to be made known through us and asking that he would glorify himself in the world through us. The German reformer Martin Luther emphasized two aspects of this prayer. First, he pointed out that all baptized Christians bear the triune name of God, right? When we are baptized, it's in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we bear the family name. And as name bearers, uh, we represent God to the world. And so in this petition, we are praying that God would keep us from dishonoring the name by which we are called and praying that he would strengthen us to live good and holy lives. Second, Luther also emphasized in this prayer that we are asking for God to be glorified in the nations through us. So this petition is a request that we as Christians and as Christ's church, that we would honor God with our lives and that more and more people would learn to call on his name. It is as the psalmist prayed in Psalm 86, that all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. And so God has promised to do it, and we pray in this first petition that he would do it through us. The second petition is your kingdom come. Now God's kingdom exists wherever people have recognized Jesus as Lord over their lives. Every Christian brings the light of the kingdom into this world and is an ambassador for their king. Every local church is an embassy or an outpost in the world as the kingdom of light goes forward and pushes back the kingdom of darkness in this world. And so in this petition, we look forward to the day when Christ returns and brings about his final kingdom rule over his creation. We pray that Christ would hasten that day of his return. But until then, we are also praying that God would bring about renewal in his people, that he would convert sinners, and that he would restrain evil. We are praying that he would progress Christ's kingdom through us, moving forward in this world as the powers of this evil age retreat. Thomas Ridgely, a 17th and 18th century theologian, Uh, who wrote a commentary on the larger catechism, he summarized when he said this. He said, when we say that your kingdom come, we we express our desire that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed. Now, I know that if you take a look around right now, it doesn't much look like his kingdom is coming. It looks like the kingdom and the powers of this evil age might be winning. But we know the end of the story. We have victory over sin and Satan by the power of the blood of the Lamb, as John wrote in Revelation 12, 11. And we know that our kingdom and that our God is of the now and the not yet. We know that our God is in the now and that he is in the not yet. And we knows, he knows how this was all going to go. He saw COVID-19 before it started. He knew the recession, that the racial injustice we're seeing, the divided country. He knew all of this was going to hit long before we did. And he promised us victory in Christ. He guarantees it. And so when we pray your kingdom come, when we think about your kingdom come, what are we going to do in response? What is our response to that? Is our response to complain, to look around and point fingers looking for someone to blame for the present state of things? 
Or will we pray, your kingdom come, Lord, and do it through us, for you have already given us the victory in Christ. Your kingdom come. The third petition is, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our catechisms teach that in this petition we are praying that God would make us able and willing to know, obey, and submit to his will in all things, especially because we are prone to rebel against him and harden our hearts towards him. Luther paraphrased the meaning of this petition when he said that we must learn to obey his will even amidst the greatest sorts of sickness, poverty, disgrace, suffering, and adversity. Now, how can we be sure when we're praying for thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? We're praying that his will be done through us. How can we be sure that God's will is good and trustworthy? How can we be sure that God's will is good and trustworthy? Consider this. Consider that this is the one part of the Lord's prayer that Jesus prayed in the garden before his trial and crucifixion. He prayed, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. He submitted to the Father's will under far more difficult circumstances than any of us will ever do. He submitted to his Father's will rather than his own personal desires, and in so doing, he brought about salvation for all who call upon his name. And so, yes, we can trust him. Jesus is not asking us to do anything, to pray for anything, which he has not first done himself. And so you can trust him. You can trust his will for your life. Do you? Do you trust his will for your life? The fourth petition reads, give us this day our daily bread. And notice now that the Lord's Prayer somewhat changes direction. While the first three petitions were focused on adoration and praise and directing our hearts towards God, uh, these last three positions are, uh, petitions are more horizontal and focus on us and our needs. You see, we're not to let ourselves dominate prayer, but we are first ought to, we ought to praise and honor our God as we desire his glory and to, for him to be praised throughout the world. And when we do so, our hearts are oriented and our present troubles and our present needs are put in the proper perspective. And so the proper place to begin prayer is focusing on the Lord. But then we are commanded to come to him with our own needs. And so in this petition, Augustine, uh, the fourth century African church father, he reminds us that praying for our daily bread is prayers for necessities rather than luxuries. The Proverbs teach us to desire neither poverty nor riches. Just as the Israelites were to only focus on collecting a day's portion of manna, so too are we to ask for the daily necessities of this life. This petition shows us the correct way, in addition, uh, not just praying for our daily needs, but it also shows us uh, the right way that we ought to relate to this physical world and to relate to our physical bodies. See, much of modern Christianity has disregarded the body, has disregarded the physical world, and has emphasized the spiritual reality. And in so doing, much like the Gnostics, uh, who regarded the spiritual and disregarded the physical, uh, we have done likewise, and we have uh, regarded one to the, to the neglect of the other. But the Christian relation to the body and to this physical world, to our physical being, is not to deify our bodies or to deify this physical world, nor is it to despise the physical world and to despise our bodies. 
Rather, we are to accept our bodies and this creation, this world as part of God's good creation, and we are to gratefully act as its steward and manager. And when we do so, we honor the creator of these earthly bodies, and we are privileged to enjoy and care for these bodies and this earthly creation as a gift from the Lord that he has given to us. And this is why Luther, in his larger catechism, at the end of this section on this petition, he emphasized not only an individual dynamic of this petition, but also a social dynamic to this petition. In the larger catechism, he taught that for all to receive their daily bread, there must, in effect, be a thriving economy. There must be good employment and a just society where people are not taken advantage of. Therefore, he says that when we pray, give us our daily bread, we are praying against exploitation in business, trade, and labor, which he said crushes the poor and deprives them of their daily bread. At the end, he warns those who would perpetuate injustice in our society. He says, beware that the prayers of God's people come against you. Beware those who perpetuate injustice, that the prayers of God's people come against you. It is a dangerous thing to be caught on the wrong side of the prayers of God's people. The fifth petition reads, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. In this prayer, we are taught to acknowledge our sin before God, recognizing that we are unable in any way to make satisfaction for the debt we owe God for our sins. And so we pray that God would, by his grace, apply faith to our hearts and grant us full forgiveness of our sin and accept us in Christ. We pray that he would continue to pardon our daily sins and fill us with peace and joy and grant to us an overwhelming sense of assurance of the forgiveness that we have received in Christ. And it's from this place of knowing the overwhelming grace and forgiveness of God that we must then extend grace and forgiveness toward others. You remember the parable of the unforgiving servant. Right? There was a servant who had a great debt to his master, and so he was arrested. And on the way to the jail, he falls down on his knees and he begs his master to forgive him of the debt. And the master is merciful, and so he, he forgives the servant of all of his debt. And so from there, this, this servant, he goes out and he finds others who owed him money, and he acts harshly towards them. And so the master becomes enraged. Right? How, would you, how could you treat others so harshly when I have treated you so mercifully? And so he has the servant locked up and thrown into jail until the servant can pay off his debt. And Jesus ends the parable with these words. He said, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. A bitter, a bitter unforgiving Christian is a Christian who is not themselves right with God. A bitter, unforgiving Christian is a Christian who is not themselves right with God. Calvin said this in his Institutes. He said, If we retain feelings of hatred in our hearts, if we plot revenge and ponder any occasion to cause harm, if we do not try to get back into our enemy's good graces and commend ourselves to them, then in this prayer we are actually asking God not to forgive our sins. You see, this is the relationship between forgive us as we forgive others. We are pledging ourselves to God and we are saying, in effect, forgive us and we will go and do likewise. And if we are unwilling to do likewise, 
we might as well ask God to withhold forgiveness from us. Now, um, I have a couple minutes, and I just want to, not in my notes, but just thinking on this this morning, I want to be careful this morning uh, to apply, make sure we're all applying this teaching in the right way, okay? Because Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, much like the Proverbs, uh, he's giving us general instruction for the way things ought to generally go in the Christian life. But the Sermon on the Mount doesn't give us nuance for every situation which the Christian is going to face. Okay, it simply doesn't give us nuance for every situation that Christians are going to face. And so when we think about this teaching uh, that we need to go and forgive others uh, as we have been forgiven in Christ, this is the general heart posture that Christians ought to have, right? The general heart posture that Christians ought to have in their life is to be quick to forgive, slow to offense, and eager to extend forgiveness to others, not to be hard-hearted, easy to offend, uh, bitter, and slow to forgive others. But there are situations, and many of you know this firsthand, there are situations when we are grievously sinned against, when we are put in harm's way, someone wants to do violence against us, someone has done violence against us, someone has abused us. And sometimes, you know, when we want to bring these things to the forefront and we share this with others, our Christian first response is, oh, we just need to forgive them, right? You just need to forgive them and, and move on. And yes, forgiveness is we do want to work towards forgiveness, right, in the Christian life. That is what we want to work towards. But we also need to apply the full scope of Scripture here, okay? And if you are someone who has been in harm's way, if you are someone who has been sinned against in grievous ways, we need to apply other passages like Jesus as the shepherd of the sheep who stands ready to protect against the wolves, okay? And we need to be ready to apply passages like that. And so if you are in harm's way in a situation of abuse, the first instruction is not to forgive the one who's harming you, but to get safe, to get free, right? To seek protection and to find protection in God's people and not just to brush things under the rug and, and be so quick to forgive and all of that, right? Now, I'm not saying, again, we need to forgive others and we ought to work towards forgiveness. However, let's apply the full scope of scripture here uh, and not just try and narrowly apply this to every single situation we're going to face under the sun. I hope that I hope that makes sense and I hope that's helpful as you're thinking through situations in your life or situations in the lives of people that you know. So again, general heart posture this morning. Where is your heart this morning generally? Are you withholding grace and mercy and forgiveness from others? Are you bitter and hard-hearted? Are you cynical towards others? Take it up with God in prayer. And do not end your prayers with God until he melts your heart afresh with his grace. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Uh, final petition reads, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When Jesus asked his disciples to stay awake and pray later in the book of Matthew, uh, they fell asleep, unable to keep watch and to give themselves to, pray, uh, to prayer. And so Jesus rebuked them and he said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. To be led into temptation or to enter into temptation is to entertain and consider, excuse me, the prospect of giving in to sin. I have often counseled those with various addictions to various sins uh, that they lose the battle as soon as they commit what I call premeditated sin. 
The imagination is captivated by the sin and the heart follows suit. And so thus we pray that we may not enter into temptation and for God to keep us from the evil which inevitably follows. This is a prayer for God's protection. Notice that we pray, uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So this is a prayer for God's protection, which he is happy to do within the communion of saints as as his people work out their salvation together. This is why the Apostle Paul, for example, exhorted us in Galatians 6 to first restore those who are caught in sin, second to keep watch on ourselves lest we too be tempted, and finally to bear one another's burdens. See, a lone Christian is like a lone gazelle on the prairie just waiting to be devoured by a roaring lion. And so when we pray for God to keep us from temptation, we are praying that he would strengthen our church to resist sin together and to restore those in our community who are caught in temptation, sin, and transgression. Finally, the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, which again uh, is not in the biblical text, but is in the tradition of the Lord's Prayer, reads, For for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Uh, Amen. This conclusion, again, likely comes from 1 Chronicles 29, and it reads like a doxology or a benediction, which we find throughout the Bible as a final word of praise to God. And so we end our prayers uh, much like we began our prayers at the top, returning our hearts to the heights of joyous praise. We remind each other in our prayers that nothing can ever take away our Father's kingdom, his power, or his glory And such confidence in our God brings tranquility and peace to our troubled hearts, which are prone to anxious worry. The Lord's Prayer teaches us not merely to to the words to pray, but primarily the substance to pray as a Christian. Scripture is filled with countless prayers which are commended to us to pray word for word, but also to be used to inspire our prayers to God. And the Lord's Prayer is the prayer of prayers. It's the prayer of prayers. It teaches us what ought to be included in our prayers and not to expect or demand anything that is not included in this prayer. And though the words of our prayers may vary and be greatly different, as Calvin reminds us, the sense of our prayers ought not to vary. The sense of our prayers ought not to be so different. And so we ask, O God, that through our corporate life together and as we seek to apply the Lord's Prayer to our lives, that you would teach us to pray together, that we might see and share in your glory as it spreads throughout the nations, that more and more would come to call on you as their Savior, that your kingdom would grow until Christ's return, and that you would do it in us. Amen.